ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. Episode number 34 this week of the MMA podcast, the Brit Fighting Talk with a distinctly British flavour. My name is Simon Head. I'm an MMA journalist from here in the UK. And my partner in crime, Shamat Karsandu, he's not here this week. He's been laid low with a serious case of jet lag after a, a pretty heavy week, from what I can make out, over there in Orlando watching WrestleMania and all the uh, WWE shenanigans that have been going on during WrestleMania week. So I'm flying solo this week, guys, so bear with me, but we do have plenty to talk about. UFC 210 took place in Buffalo, New York this past weekend, and to say that Daniel Cormier beat Anthony Johnson to retain his title barely scratches the surface of the, uh, the whole myriad of talking points that we will get through on this week's show about that event. Absolutely. Possibly one of the most bizarre events in recent UFC history. After that, we'll follow up with your questions answered. You sent in a whole boatload of questions for us this week, which I'm really grateful for, especially as I'm flying solo this week. I will go through each and every one of those and give you, hopefully, some sort of coherent answer for each. And after that, we will then look ahead to UFC on Fox 24 as the Octagon lands in Kansas City, Missouri, and Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson bids to equal the great Anderson the Spider Silver's record of 10 consecutive UFC championship defenses in the main event when he takes on Brazilian Wilson Hayes. But we cannot go anywhere until we've spoken about UFC 210 this past weekend. Buffalo, New York. And just bear in mind those last two words, New York, because they're very, very relevant right now. That was the scene of what was one of the most chaotic, bizarre, and uh, just pure weird fight weeks. Daniel Cormier, as I say, defeated Anthony Johnson by rear naked choke submission, almost a carbon copy of his finish of Rumble Johnson the first time they met when DC captured the uh, the, the then vacant UFC light heavyweight championship. But this was a whole different story. Back then, Johnson sent Cormier flying across the cage with a huge overhand right. And I think a lot of people in the media, and I know, I know a lot of the fan base, were thinking that perhaps this might be AJ's chance. Rumble might be the man this past weekend, stepping in there. He knows what he needs to do. He can correct his game. We know he's got the punch power to finish virtually anybody in the world. And with a few adjustments, I think a lot of people were expecting him to win. He was the favourite with the bookmakers as well uh, when the pair stepped into the octagon on fight night. I actually predicted Cormier to win. I thought he would do pretty much the same as he did first time round. But I did think he'd have to go through a bit of a storm first. And really, he didn't. Um, AJ, for, for reasons that I, I don't understand, and I'm sure all of you guys out there who were watching the fight as well, you probably aren't, aren't too sure yourselves why Anthony Johnson went to a wrestle-first game plan against the former Olympic wrestler, Daniel Cormier. Uh, it left me bemused. It left his own corner bemused. We've heard the audio that's been widely circulated now. And uh, it basically, all all it really achieved was it helped empty Johnson's gas tank. Uh, it did Cormier's job for him. And then uh, once the gas tank ran dry, Cormier took him down, flattened him out and tapped him out very, very quickly. That tap came incredibly quickly. Um, and uh, at that point, we were like, well, this is, this is bizarre. You know, Anthony Johnson has just effectively blown a golden opportunity to become a world champion, book himself into a a super fight with John Jones and really take his career to a whole new stratosphere. Instead, 
he goes and retires. It was something that he'd planned before the fight. Apparently, if he'd won, he was going to put the belt down in the cage. Well, he's going to walk out with the belt, perhaps, but he was going to put the gloves down and say, that's me done. He's made a commitment to another job. That was the phrase he used. And uh, we're waiting anxiously to hear what this what this other job is. There's been a suggestion that it might have something to do with uh, American football. It won't be playing, according to uh, Rumble, based on his answers in the press conference. But Henry Hooft on the MMA Hour hinted that it might still be something to do with American football. So very interested to see what, what happens with Anthony Rumble Johnson next. What we do know is that the UFC light heavyweight division just got a little bit thinner. Um, and it's pretty thin already. So the list of top contenders is just is just dropped off by one. Uh, and arguably the most dangerous and destructive contender is now off the table. Uh, I guess the that 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 uh moniker, if you like, now goes to Britain's own Jimmy Manoa. He is probably the biggest knockout artist left in that UFC 205 pound division. And he featured as well on Saturday night as Daniel Cormier, after letting AJ say his his piece, DC grabs the mic and goes full on WWE professional heel, uh, mocking Jimmy Manoa at cage side, berating John Jones, telling him to get his academics in order before he can be let back into the classroom. Absolute promotional gold. I spoke to DC, it must have been about 18 months ago now in Vegas, and I asked him specifically about that time that, that the fighters get on the microphone and why so many fighters choose to waste it. And it's a topic that we talk about on this show so many times. And Cormier was was very, very clear about it. He said, this is the most valuable time, other than the actual time you spend fighting where everyone's watching you. The number one time you have, the most important time that you have to push your own personality across, to push your own wants and needs across, and to really state a case for how you want to take your career, what direction you want it to go in, who you want to fight next, where you want to fight next. That time comes when you're given the opportunity to speak on a live mic, on live television, uh, after a fight that you've just won. Everybody's looking at you. Everybody's listening to you. They want to know what you're going to say. And if you just turn around and go, yeah, I'll fight whoever they put in front of me, that's, you might just as well not say anything. DC gets it. And what we saw on Saturday night was proof that he gets it. And this is a guy who's been getting booed largely because he isn't John Jones. I think people have bought into John Jones as a superstar fighter and for all of his shortcomings outside of the cage, they love him anyway. Um, and uh, everyone everyone loves a bad guy sometimes and everyone loves a reclamation project as well. And uh, John Jones is definitely uh, someone who fits into both of those categories. DC is pretty clean cut. Um, he's pretty respectful. He's got the analyst job on Fox. Um, he's a former Olympian. He ticks every single box for what a model champion should be. Yet the crowd just don't buy into him at all. And he's gone, he's decided to embrace that rather than be frustrated by it, where I think he has been frustrated by it in the past, watching particularly during press conferences with him and him and Jones. Uh, I think it's taken him it's taken him a little while to get used to the fact that maybe he isn't going to win the crowd over um, and have them all cheer for him. But he's winning them over in another way. He's winning them over by getting them 
to react. And it's the whole professional wrestling thing. Boo me or cheer me. Just don't be indifferent towards me. And that's exactly the way DC's going about it. If you know your WWE uh, and, and your current affairs in WWE, they've got a superstar over there by the name of Roman Reigns. And uh, he's being pushed as the big superstar fan favorite baby face, as they call them. And the crowd are just not having it. And they're booing him out the building. And on a show, um, it was it was the WWE Raw show just after WrestleMania. He stepped into the uh, he stepped into the ring, and the crowd booed the roof off for ten minutes solid, and he didn't say a word, and he waited and he waited, and like a true pro, he knew what was going on. He just let it happen, let it happen, and then he just waited for it to die down a little bit. Said, "This is my yard now." Put the mic down, and walked off. Promotional brilliance again. The crowd absolutely giving him pelters. DC is effectively taking a page out of Roman Reigns' book. Uh, and he even referenced it afterwards as well. Um, he knows what he's doing now, Daniel Cormier. And I think it's going to make him an even more fascinating uh, personality to watch in the weeks and months ahead. Especially if he, if he gets booked to fight John Jones again. I think we're going we're gonna to have a lot of fun in the lead up to that fight. Uh, the big question, of course, is what should happen next for Daniel Cormier? Should it be? against Jimmy Manoa? Should it be against John Jones? Well, I, f- I think if John Jones is, is available and he fits into the timeline for DC, I think he would be the guy that gets the shot. Uh, he's the pound-for-pound pound star. He never lost his belt in the cage, um, and he still hasn't had an opportunity, um, or, well, within within the confines of the cage at least, to get his belt back. Um, he would have done, but he failed that drug test. Uh, for the uh, the sex pills, and uh, he's he's still not been able to get in there and win his old title back. He's technically is he still the interim champion? Is that belt is that belt even still in circulation right now? He beat Ovin Saint Pru to get it, um, but right now he he's effectively the champion in waiting. He needs to beat Daniel Cormier, who is the champion. That's the fight that needs to get made next, I think. DC, uh, I think, will want that fight as well. Where does that leave Jimmy Manoa? I, I think it leaves him waiting, um, which is not is not great for him. I think maybe a fight with Shogun Hua. We spoke about it on the show. If uh, Alexander Gustafsson gets beat by Glover Teixeira, that's an obvious matchup to make as well. Do the Glover Teixeira fight. Um, the thing with Jimmy Manoa is if he's on the shelf waiting and Alex Gustafsson gets past Glover Teixeira, and I expect him to, then I think all of the calls will be for Alexander Gustafsson to fight the winner of John Jones and Daniel Cormier because the one man who has pushed Daniel Cormier and John Jones the hardest has been Alexander Gustafsson. So if you're Jimmy Manoa, you want the title fight as quickly as possible because he's probably got to go as far down the rankings as uh, as Shogun Hua to, to even stay active. And a win against him does nothing, effectively. It doesn't propel him any any higher because he's fighting a guy who's four or five places below him. Um, and Alexander Gustafsson's got the opportunity to just completely leapfrog him on the basis of uh, his fight is perhaps a, an easier fight to promote. So I don't know what's going to happen yet. Uh, I, I fear for Jimmy that he might be the odd man out, but we will have to see what happens. Uh, the fact that Cormier has... has Got a pretty nasty looking broken nose. 
that just falls into John Jones' favour and further away from Jimmy Manoa because it means that Cormier is going to need time to get that sorted out. It means that the possibility of a quick turnaround is now much, much it's now far, far less as a result of, he, you know, he, he might need a little bit of surgery on it um, and he'll need a little bit of time out. So I don't think he's looking that great for Jimmy Manoa. From a British point of view, it would be great to see him in there fighting for a world title. I have a feeling that they will hold off and do DC John Jones 2 um, probably sometime in early August, I would imagine. Um, and as for what Rumble's next job is, you know, he says it's not MMA related. There have been hints that it might be something to do with the NFL and possibly to do with the uh, the LA Rams. If it isn't that, the only other suggestion I can come up with is ministry. I think he's a spiritual guy. Um and unless he's decided to to uh, do some sort of family care work or something, if he's got some elderly relatives that need looking after, and he's he said that he's he he'd quit his job to do that. Uh, the only other thing I could think of is going into going into ministry. That's the sort of job that when people do that, they do completely change their career. There's an English an English soccer player by the name of Gavin Peacock, um, very successful. Didn't play international level, but was a good Premier League level player, playmaker in the middle of midfield for Chelsea. Very popular player he was too. And uh, one day he just decided, I'm going to stop playing. I'm going into, I'm going into ministry, and that was it. Literally, like day and night, bang, done, and uh, off he went. And um, maybe, maybe we're going to see that from Anthony Rumble Johnson. Who knows? Uh, watch this space on that one. That one's going to be very interesting. Other thing I wanted to say about about Daniel Cormier, of course, was I think there's a very good argument to suggest that the UFC light heavyweight championship should be vacant right now. Um, because what happened at the weigh-in looked less than legit to the naked eye. Watched it at the time, um, and my first thought was, how's why is he coming back and weighing in, uh, weighing in again? All these early weigh-ins, you get one crack at the scales. That's it. So if this fight was taking place anywhere else, if this was in Nevada, if this was in California or whatever, as far as I can make out, you get one go at the scales. If you miss it, you've blown it. And Daniel Cormier missed it. 206.2. 1.2 pounds over the championship weight. So off he goes. And then we're all waiting for Rumble Johnson to hit the scale. And then who should come back through the door but Daniel Cormier? Um, ready with a couple of towels, jumps on the scale again, clearly manhandling the towel. A uh, little bit of, little bit of movement on the scale, and then all of a sudden, two o five, whooping, hollering, cheering, everyone absolutely overjoyed. All of a sudden, we, you know, the champion has made weight. My first thought was, well, how is this? How is this allowed? Uh, we since discovered that there was a. Uh, there is a clause in the uh, the New York State Athletic Commission legislature that says if you are a, cha- a world champion and you, uh, oh sorry, you're in a world championship fight and you miss weight, you have two hours to come back. Um, but does that apply with this new weigh-in policy? Because most weigh-ins aren't conducted in like in boxing, for example, they're not conducted like they are with the UFC, where you get one crack at the scale and that's it. Normally, you can miss weight, you can go away, and then you can come back just like you could at previous UFC weigh-ins when they were all held on the scale. 
um, on sorry on 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 the stage. So that was a bit of a weird one. That was a bit of a weird one. So the first thought was, well, this is this is this is unusual. This is this is not what we expect from one of these early wanes. You get one crack at the scale. Okay, he's come back and he's hit two oh five. The other big question is, he was gone for like two minutes twenty seconds, and people on Twitter saying, yeah, he took a dump, a one a one and a half pound dump, and and. He's gone, he's done that, and then he's come back in and jumped on the scales. Nah, I'm not having that. That that that, that just didn't happen. Um even if he even if he'd made himself sick, um throwing up over a pound of, of stuff is is that's that's pretty significant. That's pretty significant. So I can't imagine that would have happened either. And you would think that given how dry he looked when he first weighed in. To suddenly drop another 1.2 pounds in less than three minutes is is pushing the bounds of, of uh, credibility as well. So then we look at what happened on the scale, and DC had the towel, and everyone can draw their own conclusions from what they see. And and Cormier is adamant that that, that nothing happened here, uh, and we have to take his word for it. Uh, the commissioners who were watching, well. They weren't watching, but the you know the commissioners that were there saw nothing wrong. Much like Arsene Wenger, very rarely sees anything wrong when any of his players commits a um, a foul that gives away a penalty, for example, or a red card. Um, but from what I saw, Daniel Cormier had his hands on the towel, and he was pushing down on the towel. The towel was being held quite tight. There was some tension on the towel, and by pushing down on it, he was sort of taking up taking up some of that tension and watch it back and see what you think. Uh, I'm sure you've watched it a few times already, but watch it back and see what you think. Cause it looked to me that Cormier was looking down at the scale and adjusting the level of pressure that he was putting on that towel, almost as if he was trying to adjust to the appropriate level. Now that may not be true. That's my interpretation of what might have happened. Um, Daniel Cormier says he was just holding the towel because he didn't want it to fall down. No one dropped the towel when he was on the scale the first time. He only needed to grab the towel after he got off the scale. So as an excuse, I think I'm not, I'm not sure about that, if I'm honest. Um, if a commissioner had seen that and had seen that he was holding the towel, then they would and should have told him to let go of the towel. And then we'd have had a, a completely true reflection of uh, of his weight and if he'd have weighed 205 no worries at all I just have a feeling that he wouldn't have done um, it's just my personal opinion and yeah it, to me having seen the footage and having seen that he was holding the towel and the circumstances around it if now people are saying he had two hours it's it, it's kind of a moot point it's two hours he could come back and I'm sure he'd have made the weight I, I completely agree. If he'd had the two hours and he'd come back after like an hour of it or an hour and a half of it, I fully expect he would have lost that 1.2 pounds. But after two and a half minutes, two and a half minutes to lose 1.2 pounds. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and the fact that the fact that he he had the two hours, why did they rush him out so so quickly? Why do that? It it all seemed very panicked. 
Also, given the fact that Johnson needed to weigh in within the deadline as well, I don't know if there was some gamesmanship involved there. Um, but it was, yeah, everything about that weigh-in was was less than less than satisfactory. Um, and you and, and you just hope that things are tightened up significantly the next time they have a weigh-in in in New York State. You can bet everyone will be watching people like a hawk next time round. Uh, so there is an argument there that 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 perhaps Daniel Cormier actually never made weight at all. Um, the commissioner, the uh, executive director, said he, he made weight. That's he he's the judge and jury in these things. So if he says it's legal, it's legal. But um, from from what I saw, I think there are question marks over it. So um, I'd be interested to know what you think. Tweet. Tweet me at Simon Head and at the Britpack MMA. Let me know. But lots of controversy around that main event fight. That was enough. Enough controversy for one weekend. But no, 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 no. Not this event. The co-main event delivered what, well, it's been described as a whole number of things. It was a complete cock-up. Um, it, it, it led from, it was like one error then snowballing into another, into another, into another, and the whole thing just turned into into a complete mess. And we don't have a, a satisfactory sort of result from what we had on Saturday night. Gagard Masasi was taken on Chris Weidman. This fight was arguably the most important fight on the fight card. We've got Musasi. His UFC contract expired at the end of this fight. This was the last fight on his contract. He's on a, on a winning streak. He's taking people to the cleaners. And a win over the former champion would have put him in pole position for a title shot. He'd have been right up there in, in, in the title discussion. Then you got Weidman. He's lost his last two fights. Both those fights were fights that he was winning. And he made crucial errors in both contests. First one against Luke Rockhold, he threw a, an ill-advised uh, wheel kick. Uh, Rockhold took him down, and I'm not sure he got up again after that. Um, finished. Game over. Lost his belt. Then took on... Uh, Yoel Romero he was doing pretty well against Yoel Romero then just telegraphed one of his takedowns just a little bit ducked in for a single just as Romero took off it was bad timing as much as anything um, as much as it was an error it was just bad timing and Romero caught him perfectly with a flying knee knocked him out game over again Weidman needed this one and this is on home soil for Chris Weidman um such an important fight for both men. Such an important fight for both men. The fight starts off. Weidman, just as he did in his other two fights that he lost, was getting the better of things. He was doing really well. I think the first 10, 20 seconds of the fight, Masasi looked like he was he was looking pretty sharp, throwing out some really good strikes. And then all of a sudden, Weidman just closed the distance, got his hands on him. And uh, manhandled Masasi, who said that he wouldn't get taken down once in that fight. I think Weidman had taken him down three or four times by the time the the, uh, the controversy kicked in. And that controversy took place when Musasi landed two solid knees to Weidman's head. Uh, you have Weidman in kind of a front headlock and uh, landed two big knees in the clinch position there. And uh, Weidman was bent over with both his hands down. Now, when I say both his hands down, they were both pointed downwards towards the floor. One of them was certainly touching the floor, like palm down. The other one, not so much. And uh, 
herein lies the issue. It was close. It was close. And uh, Wyvern was trying to get both his hands down in order to prevent the knees. And he was of the view that the knees were illegal at the time. Referee Dan Mergliotta, one of the most experienced referees uh, on the circuit, he, to the naked eye, thought that those knees were illegal. And certainly watching it on TV, you know, at, at, at real time, in, in real speed, the uh, the obvious question was, when you were, whoa, were they legal? Because it was, it's blink of the eye stuff. So, so Dan, Dan Mogliotta thought that they were illegal. So he paused the fight, quite rightly, because he believed that a foul had taken place. He warned Gagod Masassi, um, and then he went and went to check on Chris Weidman. While this is happening, the uh, the commentary team are getting replays. We're getting replays back at home. And I think the crowd are probably getting the replays on the big screen as well. Um, during those replays, we discover that Wyburn's second hand was definitely not down. Certainly not for the first one. And the second one, it was fingertips at best. But fingertips aren't really enough. So it was it was real borderline, the second one. So what what we can deduce from this is that Gagard Masassi did not commit a foul in either in either case, in either one of those knees. The referee made a mistake. That's fine. Referees make mistakes. They're human beings. People make mistakes. And certainly was something that required an awful lot of really close viewing of uh, super slow-mo instant replay. We needed that to determine whether it was a foul or not. Dan Mergliotta did not. You don't get that in live action you have to judge it based on what you see he was of the view that it was a foul paused the fight uh it was then communicated to him that he'd made a mistake um and at which point they're trying to work out what to do next medics come in they talk to Weidman uh Weidman has got five minutes based on the fact that Dan Merglia to pause the fight but he's 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 groggy he's been smashed in he's been smashed in the forehead with two big knees from a world championship caliber fighter He's going to be groggy. Um, what they should have done was given him the five minutes and then checked him. They checked him straight away. Um, and at that, they basically ruled that he couldn't continue. And because they'd also ruled, having seen the replay, that the knees were legal, that then means there is a TKO victory for Gagard Masasi. Now, there's so much wrong with this decision. Um... The fact that Dan Mergliotta made a mistake is almost is almost irrelevant at this point. He's made a decision in the cage. What happens after that is what's really controversial. The fact that Dan got got a, a sort of a hairline decision wrong is not the issue here. It's what followed because he because he called it as a foul, and because in New York State, in instant replays are not. Are not permitted, so any any um, any any sort of conclusions that are drawn from instant replays are null and void, no matter how accurate or correct they are. They are irrelevant. You know, you could show a replay saying, "Look at this, look at this." The referee's decision in this particular situation should be final, and that decision was it was a foul. He'd already warned Musashi, so there was no need to take any further further action against him. There was certainly no need to do anything else. It was just about giving Wyburn the five minutes. At the end of the five minutes, he 
then can make a, uh, a value judgment with the help of the ringside uh, physicians if he wants as to whether Weidman is fit to continue and indeed if Weidman wants to continue. At that point, if he's, he either doesn't want to continue or he's not fit to continue, then that fight is a no contest. Um, it, it it shouldn't. The one thing that shouldn't have come from this is a TK victory for Gegard Mousasi. Um and I think Weidman is completely within his rights to to appeal. I think the things that Weidman was saying in the cage after the fight were largely incorrect. He was he was crying foul and all the rest of it, and that wasn't the case. The issue that Weidman should have isn't whether it was a foul or not. It should be what happened after Dan Mergliotta stopped, uh, paused the fight. I'm saying paused rather than stopped because he didn't wave the fight off until the uh, the ringside physicians advised him to. So it's what happened after he paused the action. And it was at that point that, that everything just completely went went haywire. We need a rematch is, is, is the long and short of this. Team Musassi, I don't think are that keen on it. Um, but I think if if the commission overturns the overturns the decision and turns it to a no contest, which I think should be the fair the fair judgment here, then I think the only sensible thing is to have a rematch because there wasn't a, there wasn't a, a satisfactory conclusion to the fight. Even if they don't overturn it and it remains a TKO, I think that would be that would be controversial in itself, and to keep that decision in the light of what we know. Um, and I think that a rematch would be justified anyway. So, fingers crossed we get that rematch. There are other factors involved, of course. Gegard Masasi needs to negotiate a new contract with the UFC. Uh, and arguably, you could argue that the fact that the UFC might want to do this rematch and therefore dictate to Musasi what fight he does next to say, you know, we're not going to push you up any further until you've got past Weidman. That may actually fall into Masasi's um, benefit at the negotiating table because you're effectively asking him to do them a favour at that point. And it's, okay, I'll do that for you, but you need to give me this. It becomes a negotiating point, and I think that might be something that, that his management are looking at uh, moving forward. And the fact that they've said they don't really want to do the rematch, that might actually be the start of the negotiation process uh, with the UFC. Really looking forward to seeing what happens with Musasi on that one. Uh, we will talk a bit more about Gegard a bit later on in the show. I know we've got a question about that. Um, if you're Musasi, do you pursue the rematch? Well, I think, I think in Musasi's mind, I think he feel, I think he knows that he's going to need to fight Wyburn again. But I think, I think what his team are doing, I think is pretty smart. If you're the UFC, I think you absolutely pursue the rematch. Um, and uh, in terms of what should have happened, I think that that really should have been a no contest, and we should be talking about a rematch anyway. Uh, the whole thing was a colossal cock up. Uh, Dan Mergliotta, uh, I think he rather than sort of completely absolve him of blame, I you know he he made a mistake. That's the only thing he's guilty of. You know there was no incompetence on his part. He got a hairline decision wrong hairline it, it was so close so i wouldn't lay any huge blame at his door at all it's what happened afterwards that was a co-main event that's more than enough controversy for one event right we, we've had the weigh-in we've had the retirements we've had all the rest of it 
Uh, and we've had all of this with Gegard Masassi. That's enough, isn't it? No, we had Cynthia Calvillo versus Pearl Gonzalez. The fight was fine. The fight was absolutely fine. We will talk about that in a second. But what happened during fight week? Again, at the weigh-ins, we had a situation where Cynthia Calvillo made weight. Pearl Gonzalez made weight. And both of them looked healthy doing so. Um, So to then hear news that was then confirmed by the commissioner. Let's 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 not forget this. It was confirmed by the executive director during a press scrum um, that Gonzalez had been pulled from the fight um, and that the fight was off. And the reason for being pulled from the fight was because she had uh, breast implants. Now, we can argue the the rights and wrongs of whether that is a, a legitimate rule to have. I understand the thinking behind it. I don't necessarily agree with it. But I understand the thinking behind it. Um, because they feel that there's a potential safety issue with uh, burst implants and things like this. But... That really, again, isn't the point here. That's almost a secondary a secondary topic. The point here is, how did it get this far? How did it get beyond the point that both fighters had gone through a 8 to 12 week fight camp, having signed their bout agreements, completed their questionnaires and all of that stuff. 8 to 12 week fight camp, done the full weight cut, the final weight cut the day before, gone in, made weight, and then then are told that the fight isn't going ahead that's just rank ineptitude by the the new york state athletic commission pearl gonzalez uh explained after the after the bout that in fact it might even been before the bout that she disclosed all of this in a medical uh questionnaire have you had any surgery yes this is what i've had done and for it to not get picked up until after the weigh-in is 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 pretty is pretty uh, it's it's kind of disgraceful really. And had it not been for the fact that the UFC jumped on it very quickly, um, that you know we could have had we could have had a situation where a UFC debutant was denied the opportunity to fight in a main card showcase. An incredible opportunity for Pearl Gonzalez. And Cynthia Calvillo, who had already impressed once uh, on a UFC debut, would have been robbed of the opportunity to repeat the trick um, on, again on a, on, a, on a main card and on a pay-per-view, no less. Um, that would have been, you know, that would have been completely uh, unfair on both athletes. I thought the way Pearl Gonzalez dealt with everything during fight week was absolutely to her credit. And Cynthia Calvillo as well. They both dealt with it incredibly professionally, incredibly well. And uh, they went out on, on fight night and both gave everything they had. You know, uh, Calvillo was a class above. Absolutely a class above. Look, she looks a serious prospect. A serious prospect. And uh, she had a good little showcase spot on that fight card, being in, in the middle of that main card. Uh, I know there were some question marks raised about the card placement for that fight, but um, clearly, and from Dana White's post-fight press conference comments, he's clearly he's clearly investing quite a bit of uh, of interest in in the career of Cynthia Calvillo. She looks like she might go away 
in that strawweight division. Exciting stuff for her going forward. As for Pearl Gonzalez, she showed an awful lot of toughness out there uh, against an incredibly dynamic and dangerous opponent. Um, I don't think she's done by any stretch of the imagination. I just think that Calvillo, I think Calvillo is probably the real deal. Um, uh, but Gonzalez showed a lot of a lot of toughness and did a pretty good job of holding off Calvillo's uh, attacks on 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 the mat for a large portion of that fight. And the fact that she took it deep into the third round, um, I think, was was only to her credit. And and after all of the the hullabaloo and and unnecessary attention that the uh, the events of the day before had caused, I thought she handled it with incredible grace and dealt with it very well. So. Uh, Hopefully we get to see both both of those athletes back in action very soon. Uh, they've got slightly different career trajectories at the moment, but uh, I thought they both dealt with that whole whole fight week incredibly well. Um, they were the standout standout fights of the night. Um, you know, we had some we had some great performances further down on that card. Uh, in on on the preliminaries, Gregor Gillespie absolutely blitzes Andrew Holbrook twenty one second knockout. That was fantastic. Um, Desmond Green did very well uh, against Josh Emmett. That was his UFC debut, Desmond Green. Josh Emmett was undefeated and a real tough competitor at 155. Desmond got the split decision in a very eagerly, uh, very keenly contested uh, lightweight bout. Um, Patrick Cummins, looking a little bit like Charles Bronson, um, certainly had the photo of the weekend. The selfie he took in the ambulance on the way to the hospital was, uh, was something to see. Fantastic stuff. Looked like he was going to get absolutely blown out of the water by Jan Blakovic early on in that fight. Uh, I think Blakovic really let Cummins off the hook, smothered his own work in the striking department, whereas a half pace back and just assessing himself might might have brought him an early finish. Uh, Cummins really gritted his teeth and, and got and got through it and uh, claimed the majority decision win, uh, 229-28s, and uh, one judge gave it a 28-28 draw. Shane Burgos... Very, very entertaining featherweight. Looking forward to seeing more of him uh, getting a third round TK over Charles Rosa. Kamara Usman looks a monster. He's like a welterweight Yoel Romero. Um, he's got that same sort of uh, physicality in the octagon. He looked fantastic against Sean Strickland, uh, dominating him across three rounds. Two 30-26 scores on the scorecards after that one. Uh, the one thing missing is a finish. That's That's going to be the... The real, the real thing that that propels him to the next level. He's going to be, he's going to give anybody fits in that world's weight division just with his size, his strength, and his wrestling ability, and his ability to con- uh, control people on the mat. Um, but the thing that will really see people get seriously excited about him is if he starts putting people away. Um, and we saw signs of his striking sort of coming along and improving in that fight against Strickland, who uh, is is decent on his feet, but. Uh, yeah, that's the next. That's the next. The next feather in his cap for Kamara Usman. Start finishing people, and then we're going to have a very dangerous looking contender at one seventy. Miles Jury came back after a long layoff. Great win over Mike De La Torre. Uh, first round TKO. Impressive stuff. And uh, the other two fights on the main card that we haven't mentioned: Charles Oliveira fighting at lightweight after uh, his recent weighty issues as a as a featherweight. First round. Standing rear naked choke finish, former Bellator champion Will Brooks, who can't buy a win in the UFC right now, um, had a, had a win on his debut against Ross Pearson, but he's it's been it's been all uphill since then. Uh, Oliveira looked great, and then inexplicably said he wants to go back to 145. 
don't be mad. Stay at 155. Okay, you're a bit small for 155, but there aren't that many people who can do what Charles Oliveira can do in the grappling stakes in that 155 pound division. He will be a, a, a factor if he stays in that division. And the other fight, Thiago Alves, uh, outpointing Patrick Cote. Two things about that fight. Thiago Alves looks superb. 30-27s across the board. Really impressive stuff from him. And after the fight, the predator Patrick Cote announced his retirement from professional mixed martial arts. A real stalwart of the sport. Um, a real uh, stalwart of the Canadian MMA scene. Someone who I know a lot of the Canadian journalists have an awful lot of time for. Uh, some of my mates in the in, in the MMA, MMA media up there have got nothing but good things to say about Patrick Cote. Uh, I'm sure he'll stay in and around the sport. I believe he's the French language commentator for UFC events. So uh, I'm sure we will continue to see and hear of him around UFC events in the weeks and months to come. But that was UFC 210, and it was a crazy, crazy week. All right, let's go to the mid-show intermission. Uh, which comes in the form of a Q&A. You've been sending us your questions on Twitter as you do every week to the Britpack MMA on Twitter. The doors are open all week. Send us questions. If you wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night on a Monday, send us a tweet. If you're driving home from work and you've got suddenly got this question pop into your head, pull the car over, tweet it at the Britpack MMA. We want all your questions. We will do everything we can to answer each and every one of them. And we got lots this week, absolutely loads. So I will try and rattle through them as best I can. Wayne Corey on Twitter says, what is it with Kelvin Gastelum? So much ability, but problems with weight cuts and now drugs. Well, he tested positive for marijuana um, and he's now been pulled from his fight with Anderson Silva in Rio. Um, and it's unfortunate it's unfortunate. I mean, personally, when someone tests positive for marijuana, it, it just makes me shrug my shoulders. Um, a, it's out of competition. If it's in competition, okay, I kind of understand it. Um, or was it in competition, actually? I think it might have been just after the fight or the fight night. So, yeah, I mean, is it is it performance enhancing? I don't know. I'm not so sure about this. I I, I just... I'm just not sure that that the sort of sanctions that come down on fighters that test positive for marijuana is sort of proportionate to the amount of performance enhancement that marijuana could potentially give an athlete. You know, we're not talking uh, blood spinning here or, um, uh, sorry, blood doping and uh, all that sort of stuff. You know, anabolic steroids, EPO, you know, testosterone levels, things like that. It's, it's, it's not anywhere near that. So you just hope that whatever whatever um, judgment comes down, it's relatively lenient. I think that marijuana, to be honest, I think it should come off the ban list. Um, but all the while it's on the ban list, I think it needs to be treated for what it is, which is a very, very low risk, very low grade substance. So, um, yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't hammer Kelvin Gaslam too much. Um, he looks great at one one eighty five. This was going to be another big fight for him against Anderson Silva, and he he's going to be absolutely distraught from this. Um, so fingers crossed, fingers crossed that gets dealt with. He can serve his suspension, and then we can get him back in the mix. 
Uh, Daryl Chumley, have the New York State Athletic Commission damaged their future big fight opportunities with their performances? No faith in them means no big money fights? Question mark. I don't think it does. Honestly, the way Dana White was talking, saying that you know New York are back in two thousand and two thousand and one or whatever it was, he said. Um, this is a work in progress, and we're watching we're watching teething problems and and issues of competence and and things like that being played out in front of our very eyes uh, because the UFC is the biggest show in town. These things could have happened on a small, a sm- you know a much smaller show. Uh, a non-global show and we wouldn't know anything about it and then maybe if we'd given it another year and then the UFC had rolled into town then they'd be dealing with a much more uh, well-organized seasoned athletic commission but they're kind of learning on the job when it comes to MMA Um, there's an argument maybe they should draft in some MMA uh, expert commissioner help from from other athletic commissions getting them in on, on, on secondment for these big events just to help them just to get their, their checks and balances in place because clearly there's some there's some issues and, and some teething problems and you know wrinkles that need to be ironed out. Um, is it going to damage big fight opportunities? No, because New York is a massive, massive market for the UFC. They've made a commitment. They're going to put uh, multiple events on in the state each year. Um, and they're going to put some big shows on, some big big shows. Um, you know, Madison Square Garden is 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 an iconic venue. You know, there's 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 some big arenas there. You know, the Barclay Card. Uh, the, sorry, the uh, is it is it the Brooklyn Arena or the Barclay Card Arena over there? Um, and you've got the, uh, the the Nassau Coliseum as well. There's some there's some good arenas over there. Plus, they're looking to do some stuff upstate. We've done Buffalo. We're probably going to see new. Um, we're probably going to see Rochester at some point. Um, I don't think it's damaged the big fight opportunities. I just think, I just think it's exposed them. I, that's all it is. I think it's exposed them. The UFC have got to keep keep faith in them, and I'm sure they'll be doing what they can to help them. Um, and uh, it's interesting because Dana White in the past has not been shy of uh, hammering athletic commissions, but he didn't really do that here, and he had every reason to uh, to give him a caning, and he didn't. And I think the reason for that is that they know they're going back and they're going back regularly. Um, so, you know, I think we're going to just see, we're going to see these teething problems. It's not good. It makes the sport look a bit dumb sometimes. And it certainly did on Saturday night. Um, but that That's not the fault of the UFC and it's not the fault of the fighters. Um, not in this case. It, it, it lies at the fault of the Athletic Commission and hopefully... This complete fuck up that happened this weekend will allow them to uh, or encourage them to take a real close look at what they're doing, uh, draft in the help where they need it. And then the next time we see the UFC over here uh, in New York, then we'll see a much smoother, slicker operation. Stuart Tuckwell, with things going wrong with every New York event, would it put people off? Those with no affiliate with no affiliation to New York, would it put them off fighting there? Um, it's kind of a, it's yes and no. I think some people might think, blimey, I don't know about this. But what you also have to bear in mind is that the UFC are going to be bringing big shows to New York. And fighters want to be on the big shows. So are you going to turn down a a spot on a Madison Square Garden pay-per-view 
because there was a slightly slightly uh, iffy weigh-in at UFC 210, um, or they made a mess of the Musashi Wyvern fight. That for me is the biggest issue, the way they handled that. Um, but I don't think it's going to put people off. No, I think uh, the ability to to fight on on a huge card like a Madison Square Garden card. Um, I think outweighs that, and also, and I'm saying this, and I'm tempting fate by saying this, they can't, they can't balls it up this badly again, can they? Can they? Let's hope not. Let's hope not. Uh, the MMA Manor has uh, sent us an extended question. What have we got here? In the post-fight press conference, Dana White was once again asked about the women's flyweight division, and he says their quotes not ready. By that, I think he means the UFC is not ready. Um, if they can make a featherweight division with just three women, why can't they make a flyweight division uh, when they already have multiple women who can fight at that weight? In theory, that is a completely legitimate common sense question. But practically, I don't think they want to thin out their, their, their weight classes because to put a flyweight division in place, what you'll see is a lot of 115ers will want to move up because they'll be able to fight at a more natural weight. But what it also does is it gives the opportunity for 135ers who perhaps aren't quite in the mix at the top of the division to try and shoot for that lower weight class because it's only a 10-pound drop. And what happens then is you're, you're thinning out two other divisions. So then what you end up with, you end up with three divisions and all three of them are potentially quite thin um, rather than having two that are both looking relatively strong right now. Um, and I think that's the reason I think they need, I think the thinking is probably that they need a few more bodies before they can do that. Um, and, uh, I just don't, when he says they're not ready, I think that's what they mean. Uh, that they're just not quite there yet. They haven't got that critical mass of athletes where they feel they can sustain three, uh, back to back weight classes, so to speak. They're all, they're all in order. You, you know, there's no big gaps in weight between them. Um, I think doing that will thin the divisions out, and I think that's probably probably why they haven't done it yet. Hopefully, they'll do it eventually, but it's not. It doesn't look like it's on the cards yet. Um, another question about the women's divisions from Rob Turnbridge. I think this might be his first question. Cheers, Rob. Um, in the press, Dana alluded to an announcement on the women's 145 pound division soon, saying it's quote tricky. What are you expecting it to be? Do you know what? I've got a feeling that they're going to bin it. I, I'm, I'm, I've been very wrong about many things in the past, and this might be one of them. I have a feeling they might bin it. I really do. Because, or suspend it, postpone it, put it on hold, whatever it may be. Um, because while, if you look at the uh, discussion about the flyweight division that we just had, where... The athletes are there, but they don't want to thin out the other divisions. You've got an entirely different problem with the 145 pound division where you need to recruit. And when WMEIMG are currently cuss cutting, uh, cuss cutting, cost cutting is late. And uh, they're, they're looking to just streamline everything and make everything run a little bit leaner to then draft in an entire weight class at this point. Um, Maybe they're just not in the position to do that. So I'm wondering whether they might put that 145 division on hiatus. Um, 
the obvious thing to do because it works so well for the strawweights is to have a have an ultimate fighter season and have them have that mini tournament um to uh to help establish the division educate people to these all these new names who are going to come in and then you've got a ready-made division good to go and i think that's the time to do it um and we know that we're not quite at that point yet. We know uh, that isn't a weight division that they're going to use on the Ultimate Fighter that, that's happening now. And the next one that's coming, I believe they're not using it for that. So we're talking <clears throat> six to nine months away, uh, minimum, before they might start looking at that. So I'm wondering if they might put it on hold because of that. Um, watch this space. We'll have to wait and see on that one. But total guesswork on my part. But that, that would be my take. Matt Penny has tweeted. I think that might be his first question as well. Cheers, Matt. Um, is this whole McGregor chasing Mayweather stuff a damaging effect on his MMA career? Shouldn't he focus more on UFC titles and defenses? Well, that last word is 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 the important one for me. Conor McGregor is undoubtedly the biggest star in the UFC. He's won world championships in two weight classes at Cage Warriors, and he's jumped up, and he said he was going to do it in the UFC, and he's done it in the UFC. Everything he said he would do, he has done. Um, and uh, you, you have to tip your hat to the guy. You you absolutely do. What I want to see is Conor McGregor cementing that legacy, erasing all doubt by cleaning out that lightweight division. Because he's got the talent and ability to do it, believe me. Um, but it appears that that isn't on his, you know, isn't in the top two or three things on his priority list right now. So um, the Mayweather fight, I completely understand his reasoning for it. This is this is uh, this is his golden ticket, isn't it? You know, this is the opportunity to 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 earn the sort of money that it would take him probably three or four UFC fights to get close to so um it's interesting because we've got the whole negotiation process is is, is underway now um i'm not 100 percent convinced this fight happens uh for, for for a few different reasons if it happens my fear is that we won't see conor mcgregor in the octagon again uh john kavanagh has suggested otherwise and he's in a much much better position <laughs> uh, than i to uh to comment on what what McGregor's likely to do in the UFC further down the line, and uh, I really, really hope we see him back. I'd love to see him back in there this year. If the Mayweather fight happens, I, I fear that that won't happen, and that will mean that the lightweight belt goes undefeated for a year, um, and we're back to the same problem that we had when he was chasing the lightweight belt, and the featherweight division was being put on hold. Having Connor doing this stuff and chasing chasing personal goals and chasing he was chasing the lightweight belt in the UFC and now he wants to chase the Mayweather fight I've got no problem with it I've got no problem with it I think I think he should be he should be allowed to do that but what I don't think he should be allowed to do is to do that to the detriment of the rest of the weight class so I think there comes a point where you say okay when is Conor going to fight in the UFC next and that that stake needs to be put in the ground. Say, so, right, okay, I'm going to go do this Mayweather fight, and then I'm going to come back and fight in December, let's say. And if we know this, 
then I think a lot of the a lot of the concern will, will kind of drain away a bit. Go and fight Mayweather in September, then come back and fight in December or January, maybe. Okay, it'll have been a year since he last fought in the UFC, and it'll be a year since the lightweight title was def- uh, defended. But at least we know he's coming back. Because if he isn't coming back, he might just as well drop the belt now. But he won't drop the belt now because that's a promotional bauble for the fight with Mayweather. So um, is it damaging? It's only damaging if he doesn't come back. And I really, really want him to come back. I think all of all of mixed martial arts wants him to come back. Because no matter what he does against Floyd Mayweather, win or lose, um, he is one of the greatest mixed martial artists to step into the octagon. And one of the probably the greatest character to step into the octagon ever. And as someone who covers the sport and someone who enjoys watching the sport, we need Conor McGregor in our little bubble. And at the moment, he's not there. So uh, let's get him back in there as soon as we can. That's what I say. Sean Condren, I was a fan before. Could Daniel Cormier's heel turn in his interview winning more fans? I love the fact that people are using wrestling terminology just as general conversation now within mixed martial arts. People sometimes scoff at professional wrestling and, uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the big boys go and look after MMA and the kids watch the, uh, the WWE. And it really isn't that. And the crossovers are incredibly common. They really are. There are so many crossovers there um, beyond the product that you're looking at in the ring or in the cage because, you know, there aren't that many crossovers there. Outside of that, there's a lot of a lot of uh, similarities. Um, Daniel Cormier's heel turn, because that is what it was. He was already kind of a heel anyway. But the fact he's embracing it now. Uh, will it win him more fans? I think so. I think the fans that get it, I think the fans that understand it, um, and can see what Cormier is, uh, what what Daniel Cormier is doing. I think I think they will appreciate what he's doing, and they will they will enjoy him more. Whether they want him to win or lose is irrelevant. I think they will enjoy him more. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's probably the best answer I can give on that. I think more fans fans suggest that that's people that want him to win. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I think you know a lot of the boos are because. People prefer John Jones over Daniel Cormier. And I don't think, I think Cormier knows he's not going to win those people over. So he's just turning it up to 11 and uh, having fun with it. And all power to him, I think is, I think is absolutely the way to go. Chris Jones, after UFC 210 at the weekend and DC's defense, what do you think will be the next light heavyweight title fight? DC versus Jones 2 is my pick. Um, I think Jimmy Manoa is probably going to have to wait. Um, and I think the sensible thing would be to put him on the card with DC and Jones because we, if we get another UFC 200 scenario, then God help us all. Honestly, I, I was in that press conference. It will live with me forever. The whole reaction. We're sitting there. We got. Well, in fact, we just done. I think we just done a, an open workout session or something over at the T-Mobile Arena, and uh, we're in a bar. Because it had good Wi-Fi, that's why we were there. And um, got got a phone call saying you need to come over to uh, the MGM Grand. It's top secret. You can't say anything. So okay. John Morgan, who sat with me, got the same phone call. 
he was also sworn to secrecy, but um, he said, does I know this? He's like, yes, I know. So we had a bit of a laugh because I hadn't mentioned it to him. <laughs> and uh, then we sort of charged over there. And there's a small gaggle of uh, media who'd obviously all, all had the call. We're standing outside the door, waiting. And the door sort of pops open and Dana White sticks his head through the door. All right, guys, we're going to be five minutes. We're like, okay. He goes, right, hands up. Hands up who thinks that this press conference is because we're selling the UFC. About half of us put our hands up. He goes, it's not that. We're like, oh, crikey. So we go in, we sit down. Dana White walks out. The main event of UFC 200 will be Brock Lesnar versus Mark Hunt. And we're looking at each other going, what? What's this? And then he says it again. And we're like, this is, this is weird. What's going on? And then enter stage left, Jeff Nowitzki, head of athlete health and performance. Uh, the harbinger of doom. Um, he walks in. When Jeff Nowitzki turns up to do a press conference, you know what he's going to talk about. And honestly, the whole room, almost as one, went, oh, fuck. Because we all knew what was coming. We didn't know which one, but we all knew what was coming. And sure enough, failed drug test. Turned out it was John Jones. And uh, it sent everything into a complete tailspin. That fight week was nuts. So... They've already Dana's already said that if they do Jones versus DC, it will be the co-main event. Which there aren't many fights you could put above that that justify being above it. So I don't know what they're gonna do. I don't know what they're gonna do. But whatever they do, if Jimmy Manor is not in the title fight, he needs to be on that card because he is the insurance policy. He has to be on that card. So that if DC falls out, fails to make weight, gets injured. Whatever, John Jones has another mishap calamity between getting to the town and then getting to fight night. Something happens to him. You've got the insurance policy there. Jimmy Manoa always hits weight, always comes in on weight, in shape, and ready to go. Get him on the card, and uh, you never know. He might end up getting that title shot uh, first after all. Um, But I think the fight to book... Chris is uh, DC versus Jones too. Jack O'Neill tweets. Thanks, Jack. Do you think Manoa really has a chance against DC? Clearly has power and huge experience, but DC is one of the best. DC is one of the best, Jack. Absolutely. He's, uh, I think he's massively underrated. I really do. I don't think he gets, I don't think he gets, I think within the sport, he's got the respect, but I don't necessarily think he's got the 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 same level of respect outside of that that little MMA bubble. I don't know if the fans quite have have that level of respect for him. Um, do I think Manoa has a chance? Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. And if Manoa didn't have knockout power, I would say no, he doesn't. But Manoa has knockout power, and just as Anthony Johnson has knockout power, and people were backing him to beat DC. Manoa, although perhaps his game isn't as well-rounded, Manoa's Manoa's knockout power is legit. Um, And we're starting to see that. I've watched more of Jimmy Manoa than pretty much any other fighter uh, on the UFC roster during my career. And uh, I've watched him just destroy people. Absolutely destroy people. And he's now doing it at the top level. You know, his last two fights... 
you won't see two more brutal knockouts this year than the two knockouts that he produced against OSP and then against um, against Corey Anderson. Um, and his game's rounding out nicely as well. You know, he's 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 been at All Stars for a while now. He's training with some legit guys, including Alexander Gustafsson. Um, and uh, this is the best Jimmy Manoa we've ever seen, without a doubt. Um, and if Jimmy Manoa can put that left hook on the side of Daniel Cormier's head, he could become a world champion. The question is, can he do it before Cormier gets into the mat? Because Cormier, and this is no slight on Manoa's wrestling ability, Daniel Cormier's wrestling is just about as good as there is in the light heavyweight division. So um, if he gets you down, you're going to do well to get back up again. So um, if Manawa can keep it standing and land, then absolutely you can win. The betting will be lopsided towards DC, but Manawa certainly has a chance. Daniel Bradley has tweeted, do you think there's any chance of the UFC signing Danny Henry for Glasgow? Now, I don't know that much about Danny Henry. I've not had the chance to see him fight yet. He fights, I believe his recent fights have been uh, down there in South Africa for EFC and he's doing a good job down there. I think he's 10 and two, um, three fight win streak, all finishes and seven, seven wins from his last eight. So he's clearly, clearly doing the business. Um, the question is, when do the UFC want to bring in new, new talent for the regions? Uh, the UFC have got three Scottish fighters on their roster at present. Stevie Ray, Jojo Calderwood and Paul Craig. Now, I expect that Scottish tingent to be a little bit bigger than than three by the time the Glasgow show rolls around on July 16th. Will Danny Henry be part of that group? I don't know. Um, maybe. Um, it depends. It depends how many... How many Scottish fighters do UFC want to draft in? Because obviously drafting them in for one show is all well and good, but that's not what the UFC does. They, you know, they bring them in and they keep them around for two or three fights and see if they can see if they can hang around. Um, they don't. They tend not to sign people on one fight contracts. Maybe we'll start to see that. Who knows? Um, in some ways, it makes sense for some of these regional shows. Um, if the UFC says, "Look, we'll give you a one fight deal. If you do the business, there's a fair chance we'll offer you something." So it's kind of like a dress rehearsal. It puts the local fighters on the card. Um, I'm kind of winning myself over talking about this now. Yeah, get him on the card. Get him on the card. Whether whether they do or not, I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if the UFC adds a, one or two Scottish fighters to the roster by July 16th. Watch this space. Let's see what happens. Uh, Stuart Tuckwell um, has the final question of this pretty sizable Q&A session. Uh, with Gago Masasi now a free agent and Jack Array becoming a free agent after Saturday, do you think they will try and re-sign or do you think they'll choose to re-sign with the UFC or will they sign with an organisation like Bellator? Both have history working with Scott Coker. Great question. Um, this is, this is going to be really interesting. I think this is, this is kind of, I think, well, with both of these guys, it's kind of a watershed situation because we've seen fighters leave the UFC uh, and go to Bellator. And uh, some of those fighters are fighters that have been doing well. Um, and I think the highest profile one is Rory McDonald. I think he was ranked number one or number two when he left. We've got another situation here with Musasi and Jacare. 
who are two of the top contenders in that UFC middleweight division. They're both former world champions under Scott Coker. Um, Musashi at light heavy and Jackaray at middleweight. Um, but either either one of them could conceivably be a UFC middleweight champion of the future. Michael Bisbing, we know, has probably only got a couple of fights left. Um, he basically said he wants to defend three times and then ride off into the sunset. Uh, I believe he also said that if he lost his belt, he'd, uh, he'd call it a day. So whichever way you look at that, we're only talking another couple of fights. So interesting to see what happens here because I think Musashi... Both Musashi and Jacare are in position where they can ask for some serious money. Musashi's got 50 fights under his belt. He's won world championships everywhere in the world uh, that he's fought, pretty much. Um, and now he's in a position to fight for a UFC world title. But in order to do that, he needs a new contract. Jacare, same position. You know, he's a legit world champion uh, from, from Strike Force. And he's now ripping through the middleweight division. He could quite easily be fighting for the belt, but if he's going to do it, he needs a new contract. Now they could jump into uh, Bellator and be instant superstars and end up fighting each other for the middleweight title uh, in no time at all. So it's, you know, it wouldn't take long for one of them to get the belt and the other one to challenge. So it's, it's really interesting. I think if Musashi, and or Jacare end up in Bellator, I think that's that's that would be a huge momentum shift towards Bellator because you've got two credible, current, legitimate, elite level guys leaving one promotion to join the other. So how they go about the negotiation process and what the UFC, how the UFC deal with this will be really interesting. Um, of course, being that close to a UFC belt may well be the determining factor. That, that that keeps you around. So, yeah, I I I have a feeling Musashi will stay. I also have a feeling that if one of them leaves, I think Jacare is the more likely to leave. Um, I just that's just that's just my gut feeling. Um, but we'll see. You could see either one of them leaving. You could see both of them leaving. Uh, you know, they could both stick around. It really is sort of. Toss a coin with both of them. So, um, but watching their next move will be very interesting. That's for sure. That's the Q and A section done. Thank you so much for all your all your questions. Really appreciate appreciate them, especially this week where uh, I haven't got Sandu to bounce these questions off and uh, and and have a bit of a discussion. Uh, you can tweet them to us at the Brit Pack MMA, and you can do it whenever that whenever the mood takes you. Don't don't wait for us to ask. Just just ping them over, and we'll keep track of them and uh, answer them on next week's show. We'll finish up with a quick run through uh, what's coming up this weekend on Saturday night, April 15th, live from the Sprint Centre in Kansas City, Missouri. We have UFC on Fox 24. Uh, The main card sees Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson taking on Wilson Hayes in a bid to make his 10th successful defence of the UFC Flyweight Championship of the World. If he's successful... He will join Anderson Silva uh, at the top of the list for World Championship defences in the UFC. Uh, and then obviously one more. He'll be on the top of the tree himself. Demetrius, number one pound-for-pound fighter on the planet right now. Um, 
it's hard to see where the challenge is going to come from uh, in that flyweight division. He really has cleared out that division. Wilson Hayes, uh, dangerous grappler, dangerous grappler, but uh, I don't think I don't think he's got the all-round game. If Demetrius Johnson is on his game and fights as smart as he usually does, then uh, we should see. Uh, championship defence number 10 successfully negotiated, but you've got to be wary of Wilson Hayes' submissions. Co-main event, Rose Namajunas against Michelle Waterson. Really looking forward to this fight. Two strawweight contenders. Rose has always been right up there in the top two or three in the world. Um, she needs a she needs a big win here to just get that momentum and throw her straight back into the championship mix again. Waterson, she's getting the big promotional push right now. And rightly so, um, you know, she's got she's got everything going for her. She comes across superbly in interviews. She's really easy to deal with and she's an exciting fighter to watch and super talented. That will that will be an absolute cracker of a fight. Um, I suspect it will go the distance uh, and uh, it's going to be a close one. We talked about Jacare Souza a bit earlier on in the Q&A. He's in action too. He's taking on Robert Whittaker, the Reaper, um, in... What is the last fight of Jacare's UFC contract? Robert Whittaker, everyone keeps writing the guy off, but he's legit. You know, he moved up from welterweight. There are a lot of question question marks over that decision and whether he could cope being a relatively small middleweight. This is the biggest test of his career, no doubt about it. He got a really, really good win against uh, Derek Brunson. Uh, absolutely took Brunson apart. Uh, used all of his aggression against him um, and uh, and stopped him. Ronaldo Jacare Souza has got heavy hands, and of course we know all about uh, his world class grappling credentials. Robert Whitaker, um, I'm sure, will be a sizable betting underdog for this one, but I'm fascinated by this because I've said it before: when Australia take a sport seriously, they get very good at it. And if they could get themselves a world championship challenger or even a world champion. I think that could be a real game changer for the sport down there. So uh, looking forward to seeing how Whitaker does against someone like Jack Array, who really, really needs to put, put on the show, take out this, this rising contender in Whitaker and say, I'm the guy. I'm the guy who should be fighting for the belt next. Uh, rounding out the main card, Jeremy Stevens against Hanato Moicano. Stevens, we know all about him. Moicano, I believe, is undefeated. This is going to be an interesting fight. There's uh, not much name value in, in, in Moicano for Stevens. It's a fight that most casual bystanders will be expected Stevens to win. Um, but it's going to be a tough one for him uh, against a relatively unheralded but dangerous, dangerous challenge. The prelim see Alexander Volkov taking on Roy Nelson. Patrick Williams taking on the debut in Tom Dukemois. For those of you who don't know Tom Dukemois, watch out for this kid. He is legit. Um, former Bama world champion um, and uh, absolutely superb. Trains out of Jackson's and uh, he's he's the business. Trust me. Watch that guy. The fire kid, Tom Dukemois. Um Everyone talking about uh, Francis Naganu uh, coming out of France and being so good. We've got Carl Amasu in Cage Warriors as the welterweight champion. He looks UFC bound very, very shortly. Also coming out of France is this lad, and he might be the best of the lot. Tom Dukemois, watch out for him. Bobby Green is back in action against Rashid Magomedov. That's a stiff, 
stiff test for him on his way back into the octagon. And a fight that I think, if you're going to put your money down on a fight in the night, put it down on Tim Elliott versus Lewis Smoker. That, I think, will be an absolute cracker. Scrambles are plenty in that one. Just you watch. Fight pass prelims are going five deep this weekend. Del- uh, Devin Clark versus Jake Collier. Anthony Smith against Andrew Sanchez. Aljamain Sterling way down on the card against Augusto Mendez. Um, Zach Cummins versus Nathan Coy. And Ashley Evans-Smith, who uh, I also think deserves to be a little bit further up the card than being the curtain jerker. First one out against Ketlin Vieira. Watch out for her. Um, if Ashley Evans-Smith gets a win there, she's moving her way up uh, in that bantamweight division. She's uh, she's a very, very talented fighter at 135 pounds. And that is just about it. Thank you so much for listening to the Brit Pack episode number 34. We made it to the end, everybody. Thanks to everyone who tweeted us questions for the show. Our doors, as I say, are always open for your questions. So make sure you tweet them to our official account at the Brit Pack MMA and we'll answer them for you next time we go on air you can follow Sandu even though he's not here follow the man on Twitter anyway he's at Sandu MMA and you can follow me at Simon Head as I say the official show handle is at the Brit Pack MMA you can subscribe to the show via iTunes Stitcher SoundCloud Acast and YouTube and for all of our previous shows plus details on how to subscribe and a few other bits and bobs check out our official website thebritpackmma.com Right, it was a bit of a different show this week with Sandy being out of action, but I guarantee he will be back in the mix once again on next week's show. We'll pick, pick over the best and worst of UFC and Fox 24 as Mighty Mouse bids to equal answer to the record of 10 consecutive championship defenses. Are you going to bet the house on Mighty Mouse? Or is Wilson Hayes the phrase that pays? We'll find out on Saturday night. Enjoy the fights, and I'll speak to you this week. Oh,